Thank you for tuning in to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. To keep connected with us, follow us on Instagram, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and join our Calvary Connection. The vision of our church is to make Jesus famous. When Jesus is famous, everything changes, and he becomes our passion because his love is better than life. Today's message is from our monthly growth nights that are on the first Sunday of every month at 5.30 p.m. Pastor Nate teaches about being Jesus' famous men. Enjoy. Hey, we're going to kind of bounce around a lot of different scriptures tonight, but if you want to turn with me to Galatians uh, chapter 2, we'll begin there. And uh, tonight um, is uh, we're talking about a Jesus-famous man fosters a gospel-oriented uh, community. I think I shared with you guys that at the outset of this whole series, I kind of had to wrestle with my wife over the titles because we wanted to share the titles. We wanted to be able to say a Jesus-famous man and a Jesus-famous woman, and then whatever the title was for that month. So fosters a gospel-oriented community. And um, this one, I can't remember who won this uh, this this uh, wrestling match, but I like it. You know, the idea that uh, we are gospel people and we want to develop community. So I chatted with her actually just right there during the announcements. This is the one session where I'm not very clued into what she's going to be sharing with the uh, women. I was kind of preparing this afternoon a little bit, doing some final touches and realized I don't know what she's going to share with the ladies. And uh, so I asked her, and her teaching, it sounds like, has nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about tonight. Uh, I'm going to talk mostly about two major categories that as men, we're responsible for developing um, a gospel-centered community in our own lives personally. Um, We, as men, are called to community. Um, God is a trinity, so we're called to a relationship with God. We're called to cultivate our relationship with ourself. Uh, We're called to, some of us, develop and lead families. Uh, We're called to our church. Uh, We're called to develop friendships. We're called to develop community even inside of our workplace. And then we're called to be a blessing to our society, which you could also say is a a version of community. Uh, But tonight, for us, I'm going to focus on um, the responsibility responsibility that we have as men to prioritize and to pour into and to develop the community of the church and also our friendships. We're going to talk about friendship uh, tonight. So Galatians 2.14 is my starting place uh, this evening. Uh, Paul, and, and we'll get into this when we go through the book of Galatians together, but one of the big themes of Galatians is that uh, Paul is um, had a major conflict with many of the people who said that he didn't have authority uh, as an apostle, so he corrects them in the opening chapters, uh, but he's also fighting for the gospel. The gospel is sort of in flux or being debated over by many people in the region of Galatia. Uh, they've begun to believe that you could uh, be saved by grace through faith, but that you needed to add to your faith things like circumcision and all of the Jewish rites that the Old Testament taught about in order to complete your salvation. And so Paul was really fighting against that concept. I mean, they'd already had at this point the Jerusalem 
uh, council in Acts chapter 15, where they determined, no, that's not true. God has, by the Spirit, brought the gospel to the Gentile world. They don't need to add Judaism to their Christianity. They're just saved. God has done a new thing. This is a new humanity. So they'd already come to that determination by the time Galatians chapter 2 rolls around. But he alludes to a meeting in Antioch where Peter came and visited. And Peter and James from Jerusalem, they saw all these Gentiles at the church in Antioch, and there was a meal where they separated themselves from all of these Gentiles, as if to say, uh, we're going to maintain the Jewish ceremonial rites, and we are going to be clean, and because you guys are eating the way you are and living the way you are, and you're not keeping the Judaistic standards, you are unclean. And uh, this really upset uh, Paul the Apostle. And so he rebuked Peter, and uh, we can go back to verse 11. He said, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Ain't no party like a circumcision party. So circumcision party don't stop. And the rest of the Jews, sorry, I'm very junior highish when I read the word circumcision and party together. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Uh, the line that I want to focus in on just for a moment to roll us into this teaching is that line in verse 14. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Uh, there is a way of behavior, in other words, that is in line with the gospel and a way of behavior that is not. And what we want as men is we want to have relationships and form communities that uh, are a reflection of the gospel, that are in line with the gospel and not out of line with the gospel. So like I said, we have all these different categories that we are called to develop a community, our relationship with God, with ourselves, our families, perhaps, friends, churches, work, and society. But tonight I want to focus on two, just church and our friendships. And I'm going to start uh, with the church realm. And uh, for this, I'm going to turn to Acts chapter 2. Like I said, I'm going to turn to a lot of different places tonight. But I'm going to look at Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 42. This is kind of a classic passage of Scripture. Uh, the book of Acts is about the launching of the church. So Jesus has ascended at this point in the early portions of the book of Acts. He goes back to the right hand of the Father and he tells his disciples, I want you to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. Uh, when he comes, he will give you power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So they wait. They have a prayer meeting basically for 10 days. And after 10 days, they're in Jerusalem in the midst of prayer, the Holy Spirit descends upon them, falls upon them. Uh, many of them actually receive the ability to speak in other languages, unknown tongues. And this draws a crowd. 
Some people try to figure out what's going on and excuse it and, try, and start saying, oh, these people are, they're just drunk. I've never met anybody who's gotten drunk and been able to fluently speak in another language as a result, but that was the excuse that everybody made. And so Peter stood up and filled with the Spirit himself, this man who not all that long ago had denied Jesus at the cross. This man stands up and he says, these men are not drunk as you suppose, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what is written by the prophet Joel. And he quoted a long passage from the book of Joel about the dissension of the Holy Spirit and men and women being gifted by God to do his work. So he's announcing this new age and then Peter preaches the gospel. And he tells this crowd, you crucified the Christ that we've been waiting for. And so they asked him, what should we do? He said, you need to believe. Uh, you need to believe and you need to be baptized. And so that day, 3,000 people were added to the church. 3,000 people got saved. Uh, but then it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says what they did next. This is just the infant church. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All right, just a very, very simple verse. Uh, a lot of preachers like it because it's got a nice outline inside of it. You've got four different categories, the apostles' doctrine, uh, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. But I wanted to use this verse to highlight um, for you what I, what I think you should be looking for when it comes to developing a gospel-oriented uh, community inside of the church. So in other words, what kind of church am I looking for? Well, outside of verse 42, you have the concept, number one, that this church is built upon the gospel itself. How did it even come to be? Because it had preached the gospel and people had believed. All right, so that's kind of the first thing that you need to be constantly looking for when you're thinking about where am I going to fellowship? How am I going to fellowship? I want to hear the gospel proclaimed. And I'm saying this to you because, you know, I, I, I realize that, um, you know, some of you might live here in Monterey for the next 30 or 40 years, but for the most part, we're pretty transient people. We're all going to probably have to make multiple decisions about where we're going to fellowship in the future. And uh, God forbid, I mean, hopefully I don't ever do anything stupid or really weird where you have to go look for a different church. But if you're here, then hopefully you'll hear the gospel being proclaimed. But whenever you have that decision in front of you, you want to look for that. I remember talking to uh, a man uh, who uh, I think it was a, a brother in the military, and he just shared with me. He said, you know, when I go to a new community and I'm looking for a church, uh, I give them two weeks to preach the gospel. I need to hear the gospel clearly from the pulpit within two weeks. You know, the first week, it, maybe it's like Mother's Day or a guest speaker or something, but for two weeks to go by without the gospel being clearly presented inside the context of the preaching of the word, then something's amiss. That's not the place that I want to be. So I, I just wanted to mention that first. It starts with, this all began with the gospel. These people were there because they believed something. And the thing that they had believed was in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, the second thing that I want to point out to you about this gospel-oriented church is that 
it was filled with uh, genuine believers. Look at what it says there. It says, and they devoted themselves to, and then it lists all these things. That word devoted, I think it hints at um, genuine people who are earnestly wanting to walk with God. And this is another thing that we ought to be looking out for and, and desiring when we press into a local body of believers. You want to find a place that is filled with genuine believers, people who are serious about the Lord. Now, not everybody is going to be. We all recognize that, right? I mean, I, I don't know what the percentages are in our you know, church on a typical Sunday morning, but in my heart, I know what, I know what I'm praying for. I know, I know that I'm praying that you know, maybe 20 or 30% of the people that are there, that they wouldn't yet know Jesus. You know, I, I mean, I'm obviously praying that they would know Jesus, but the point that I'm trying to make is that I'm, I'm hoping that there will be a fair amount of people there, not just one or two, but a fair amount of people there who are still thinking, questioning, researching, um, and searching and asking questions about the Lord. So what that means is when you, when you look around, you know, at, at a local church, uh, you shouldn't expect that every single person, 100% of the population is going to be all in passionate about following after the Lord. You're going to have some people that are on the fence, some people that are still thinking about it. And then on top of that, we all understand the reality of carnal Christianity. So you're going to have people who are, you know, orthodox in their faith, they believe in the Lord, but they're struggling a bit and they're still working out their sanctification and they're not quite all in on letting Jesus be the Lord of their lives. And God is going to be the judge of their lives. We have to commit them into the Lord's hands. But you don't want to be part of a church where you just kind of look around and say, you know, really there's nobody that's taking Jesus seriously. There's nobody here who's really trying to shape their lives by the dictates of God's word. No, there were devoted people in this early church. The third thing I want you to see about this early church is that uh, they centered themselves around the word, right? I mean, it says that they devoted themselves, and the first thing that it, that it mentions is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the apostles' teaching. Now, the apostles, I mean, what I would have just so loved to be there during those early years because, I mean, we hold in our hands today in the New Testament the byproduct of the work that they did in those early years. But in those early years, there was no, like, you know, on this first day of the church, there was no, like, let's turn up, let's turn our Bibles to the book of Matthew and let's read it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they'd not been written yet. None of the epistles were around yet. Paul wasn't even a Christian, the man who wrote much of the New Testament. So what they had to do is they had to take the teachings that Jesus had given them, and Jesus promised them in the book of John that by the power of the Spirit, the Spirit would remind them of what he had taught them. But they had to take the Old Testament scriptures and declare Jesus from them to the people. But because they were taking, so why doesn't it just say they centered themselves around the scripture? Well, because the apostles were taking the age-old word of God, and they were teaching it by the power of the spirit through the filter of the gospel in a way that it had never been declared before. So in a sense, you could say this is like a new thing, the apostles' teaching. And uh, of course, for us today, 
Uh, we have the apostles' teaching. I personally, by the way, I believe in John chapter 17, you guys might be familiar with the prayer of Jesus there in John chapter 17. One of the highlights of Jesus' prayer is he prays for the church in the future to have unity. Um, he per first prays for himself that he'll be glorified again. Then he prays for his disciples that, they, that God would preserve them and protect them. And then he prays for a unity in the church in the future. My personal uh, view, not that I've made this up, the camp that I'm in is probably a better way for me to say it. When I say my personal view, it kind of makes it sound like nobody else thinks this, but I've come up with something special. That's not the reality. There are some people who think that all Jesus is saying is the church needs to be unified. There's other people like myself who think what Jesus is saying is the church needs to be unified to the apostles. We, we need to be thinking about what the apostles said, what the apostles taught. That's where our truest level of unity is found to get into the word of God. Uh, but this church also, notice, not only did they just sit around and you know think about the word, but they were also living in community with each other. That's the second thing that they did in a devoted way. It says they continued in the apostles' doctrine and the fellowship, the fellowship. Now, this is kind of like one of those messages I was looking over my notes this afternoon and I was thinking, this is kind of one of those messages that like probably the odds are that I'm delivering it to the very people who don't need it and the people who do need it are actually not here tonight. Because there's all kinds of Christian men out there who say things like, I don't need to be part of the church. I don't need to be known by other people. I don't need to have relationships with other Christians. Usually those aren't the kind of guys that show up to a random Sunday night uh, growth night meeting. Uh, so I, I, I'm hopeful that in this room we have a group of guys who are saying, I, I need others to know me and I need to be known. Christian fellowship this is a, a beautiful thing. I recently, you know, I've, I've, I'm like all of you guys, you know, I've got, all kinds of different relationships and connections and networks. And, uh, but I've got a, a handful of real close buddies that I've been friends with for years, you know, who are, I, I love them. They're not impressed with me at all, you know. So they, they, they bring me back down to earth very easily. And uh, we've been in a little rhythm lately, just myself and two of them, where we've been getting together every Thursday morning, just talking about what God has been speaking to us in the Word, uh, areas of temptation. Uh, that we've been struggling with, things that are going well in our lives and just challenges and hurdles and obstacles and then just kind of praying for each other. And it's so simple, just kind of looking at it on paper, we, what we say is we say, all right, you're gonna share your MVP and what that stands for is your most valuable passage. So what did you read this last week? What was the most valuable passage that stood out to you, you know, and why? And then we share the good and the bad and the ugly. So the good is, here's what's going well in my life right now. There's things I'm thankful to God for. Uh, the, the bad is, here's, here's what's hard in my life right now. Here's some obstacles and hurdles I'm dealing with at work or in the family or pressures I'm feeling financially or whatever it might be. And then the ugly, temptations, things I needed to ask forgiveness for or confess. And we just kind of run through that. And just kind of looking at that outline, I, I remember I kind of wondered, like, I wonder if this is going to be any good. And... You just kind of get into it and you realize, you know, the Lord is just, he makes things so simple for us, but you just got to do it. But that Christian fellowship, it's just been so rich. And that's what these people were about. They were about the fellowship. They were about being with other Christians. And then 
Also notice that a gospel-oriented church, here they are, they are relationally warm. They were breaking bread. Now, some people think that when it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread, that means that they devoted themselves to taking communion. Um, I'm sure that was part of it, but I think it was more than that. I think that they were, they were breaking bread. They were eating meals together. And you guys know there's something to that, isn't there? You know, having a cup of coffee with somebody or eating a breakfast with somebody, there's just something about that. Sometimes meals require being in a home together, and that breaks down all kinds of walls. In that early church, that's how they lived. And then sixth, the, this gospel-oriented church, it broke into the spiritual dimension. They prayed. They prayed together. And I want to encourage you, as you're developing your own you know, gospel-centered community, I want to encourage you to take a risk in the element of praying with other men. Uh, I, I know that for some, it can be really scary to pray with other people. What are we going to pray about? Are they going to judge me for the way I sound? Is it going to be a weird experience, you know, or whatever it might be? But all you have to do is just think about your areas of responsibility, stuff that's pressing in on you, and then you guys just pray together over and for those things. I'll never forget early on when I became the pastor here. You know, I'm 44 years old now, and I've been the pastor for 15 years. And in those first couple of years, you know, the, at age 29 or so, I felt a little out of my depth. And in God's providence, um, I became uh, friends with a, uh, actually a fighter pilot who was going to school here during that time. And we're still in contact today. And he just understood leadership. So as we became friends, we began talking and he said, hey, what do you think about just getting together once a week and we'll just spend time just praying for each other and the areas of leadership and responsibility that are on our lives. And we would get together in my garage uh, once a week, and I just remember, man, the spirit was just so there, you know, because I needed that strength at that time in my life. And as we prayed together, it's like a transfer was happening. I was trading out my weakness and fears for boldness and courage from the Lord. But that was us breaking into that spiritual dimension. And so I'd encourage you in that way. Ask the Lord to open that kind of door. And then finally, this gospel-oriented church, they, um, it, it just from Acts 2, ver verse 42, it's obvious they had good leadership in this church. I mean, the apostles were leading the church, so they, they had a great thing going on. You know, if, if anybody had a one-star review of this church, you know, like, I really don't like those apostles. Uh, you know, so you're kind of on the outs with that one. So had great leadership, and you want to be looking for that. Are these, are these um, solid men that I could emulate or that, that uh, I uh, look up to their walk with and relationship to the Lord. All right, so that's a little bit just about the kind of church that we should be looking for. But I want to talk to you for a second in this section about thinking about our relationship with the body of Christ. Uh, I want to just do like a little bit of a brief, like kind of just practical advice or pr uh, like a practical um, introduction to or a primer or uh, like a how-to guide on just how to uh, be part of the church. 
All right, just like, I mean, I, I don't want to say it this crudely, but just like how to go to church. How do you, how do, you do this? You know, I remember years ago, we had a, you know, when you get something breaks in your house and you've got to figure out how to fix it and you watch like a YouTube video, you know, on like how to get it done. And uh, that's kind of what I want to do for you. Just a little bit of a how to, how to go to church. And when I say that, I mean, I'm kind of sensitive to even saying that phrase because I grew up hearing, and it's true, that the church is not a building or a location. The church is a group of people. So you really don't go to that per se, like I've got an address, 3001 Monterey Salinas Highway in Monterey, California. That's me going to church. The church is wherever God's people are at, uh, but you guys know what I mean. So how can we go to church? Well, the first thing I want to say is that you have to have the understanding that it all begins with God. God invented the gathering. God invented his church. God invented his people. In Revelation chapter 1 through 3, there's this imagery of lampstands, and Jesus is walking in the midst of these lampstands, and John comes to discover through an angelic interpreter that the lampstands are representative of the seven churches in Asia Minor at that time. And Jesus is presented as walking in the midst of these churches. So what that means is that Jesus is in the midst of his church. Now, I'm saying this because one thing that Christians believe, rightly, is that God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. You know, you hear that from the time that you're a little child if you grow up in the church. God is everywhere. There's no place that God isn't. Um, But what some people end up doing with that doctrine is they end up thinking that they can experience God then the same way alone at the beach as they can in the gathering of God's people because after all, God is everywhere. Well, it's true that God is everywhere, but his relationship to each of those individual points and the way that he'll behave as a result is different. For instance, when we're in sin, God is there, but it doesn't mean he's there for blessing. It means he's there with a broken heart, or he's there for discipline, or he's there for rescue, or he's there for chastening. So yes, God is everywhere, but we have strong indications in scripture that God is in a special way present for blessing, instruction, guidance, leadership, the manifestation of his power when his people gather together. You know, Jesus said things like this, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Does that mean that when you're by yourself, Jesus is not with you, that the Lord is not present? No, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that you you can alone have a time of prayer with God, that you alone can experience God's presence, that God is everywhere at all times. But what it is saying is that when you gather intentionally in my name because of me, uh, there's a special version of my presence and power that I will manifest for you in those moments. So that's what I mean when I say it all starts with our understanding of God. We have to understand the reason that we're going to a gathering together of God's people is because uh, we're expectant. 
that God is present in a special way in that place and time. So let me give you just some practical things that will probably start with the very practical and very rudimentary all the way down to just how I'd like to encourage you as men to behave with your local church and this local church. Uh, One of the first things I just want to say is, you know, we meet obviously on Sunday mornings. We have three Sunday morning services. And uh, and then there's life groups that you can get involved with along with some other smaller kind of ministries. And what I want to say is that the times that you attend church, I really think that you should put those on your calendar. I don't know how many of you guys are like calendar people. Um, I really would love for you to be a calendar person if you're not. But you need to put it on your calendar. And the, the reason I'm saying that is simple. I want you, if the moment comes where something else comes up, I want you to have the experience of going to delete church from your calendar. I've just found that when we're, it's like, a, well, you know, I'll probably go. It, it'll probably happen. Uh, there's just so many things that compete with that time in our lives. It's important to put in the most important things first. So don't let yourself feel that it's optional, but something that you have committed to in advance. And uh, let yourself see when a conflict is there and then weigh in those moments and say, what is the most important thing in my life? Okay, when it comes to the Sunday gathering, One of the things I want to say is a successful Sunday gathering begins the day before. Okay, it begins the day before. Uh, If you are planning to go to church at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning or 10.30 on Sunday morning or even 12 o'clock on Sunday morning, uh, and you decide that you're going to stay up till 3 or 4 in the morning playing video games or something like that, um, you have just impacted the church service the next day, both for yourself, but also for the people that are all around you. I mean, your worship, for instance, like the way that you sing to the Lord, it's probably not gonna be filled with very much energy or inspiration, and will probably be a little bit of a drag down on the people that are around you in that moment in the morning. So it begins the day before. So make that decision ahead of time. And and I think what I wanna say, because I'm sure a lot of you guys are Um, you know, I've seen a bunch of kids being dropped off downstairs tonight, so I'm sure a lot of you guys are dads. The thing I want to encourage you in, if you are a father, especially if you have little children, is to um, don't be be rude and don't be, uh, you know, don't be a punk about the fact that it's sometimes difficult to get a big family of people to a church gathering. I mean, it's early in the morning. They got to dress right, you know, eat breakfast, all that kind of stuff. But what I want you to do is take the posture of a servant leader to try to help make it possible. You know, there's a lot of moving parts to getting, you know, I mean, I remember when my kids finally got to the point where they could put their pants on by themselves. It was like a celebration, like you are at a new level in life. It's getting your pants on by yourself level. I mean, it's just a different kind of ball game. And before that, you know, it's it's a big deal, just like the putting on the clothes, finding the shoes, all that kind of stuff. And you as a man, you can help um, grease the wheels and make things run more smoothly. In other words, like the day before, you know, you can kind of like be going like, hey, you know, like 
Sometimes I'd ask my like kids, you know, when they were in the, like once they were in the get your pants on by yourself kind of mode, like, hey, what are you gonna wear tomorrow at church? Because I just knew like that's one of the most explosive, time-consuming kind of things. In the morning, they're girls, they're gonna be trying to figure out like, hey, do you know where your shoes are? You know, kind of things. Because how many times were, can you, are you late to church because somebody can't find their left shoe or something like that? And as a father, you can kind of take that leadership. Like, okay, I'll take care of breakfast. I'll, I'll get everybody up. I'll help things get moving. Uh, so I, I try to say that, you know, to, to be kind and gentle in that process. Don't be, you know, oh, man, if it was just me, we'd be on time every time, you know, kind of thing. But have a great attitude about it. But take the burden and responsibility of saying, I can do something about that. I can be a blessing. I can try to help uh, us. And uh, so the preparation the day before, I think, is important. And then uh, when it comes to the actual gathering, you got to get up. You got to get up uh, early for the day that it's time to go to church. You got to set your alarm for the proper time, wake up when necessary. Uh, sometimes people ask me, like, do you have a quiet time on church days? You know, I know some people don't. I remember hearing Billy Graham would have like a really rock solid Bible time and quiet time every single day of the week. But then on Sunday, he would just kind of get up and he would just kind of skim through four or five Psalms and then he would go to church, you know, expecting to worship God there, pray there, and hear from the word there. And uh, my quiet time's truncated for sure on Sunday mornings, but mostly because it's a work day and moment for me, and I need usually another 90 minutes or so before church begins to study and kind of refresh myself, make changes that I've thought of over the weekend, and then uh, hit publish and go pray about it for a little bit before showering up and coming in. So, But I always try to spend time, you know, reading the Bible a little bit, spending time with the Lord before getting into all of that, and you got to wake up for that. Give yourself enough time. Uh, and also, especially if you're leading a family, give yourself enough time. And I see Riley sitting over there, so he's gonna really love this one. Try to give yourself enough time to get here, park, drop your kids off, come upstairs, and be there for the beginning of the worship time. I, I, I say that without any kind of condemnation. I know that it's hard to make happen, especially if you have a lot of moving parts and a bunch of kids and all that kind of stuff. But the worship time is designed for us to be able to bring an offering of praise to God. And my encouragement is that you get, make every effort to be there for the entire church service. Uh, for me, I've found that it's just beneficial to have a little bit of human contact beforehand you know, kind of get here early to be able to say hello to a handful of people, grab some coffee, hit the restroom, and then boom, I'm in there before the countdown is over with. I got my spot, and I'm ready to worship God. Uh, if, you're, if you're rushing into it, you just have a harder time, honestly. It's just harder to hear from the Lord. It's harder to uh, track with his word because you're distracted. You're still slowing down. Another thing I'd say about this engagement with the gathering, and I'm talking about preparatory things right now, but is to have an expectancy and a belief that God is going to work that day, that moment, at that gathering in your life. Um, he, I believe, wants to use you every single time we come together. Uh, he wants to use you to encourage somebody, I believe, 
or to serve somebody or to greet somebody, to love someone, to get to know someone. He, he wants to use your life. I was just talking to a brother this morning um, who introduced me to this older woman after the service. And uh, she was deeply moved by the service. She shared with me, she said, that sermon wasn't for anybody else. It was only for me. It's like you were talking to me. But what had happened, and he introduced her to me. And so I thought that they just kind of knew each other or whatever. But what happened was he had pulled into the parking lot right next to her pulling into the parking lot. And he saw her and he thought, I don't think I recognize you. I don't think I've ever seen you before. So he just introduced himself. He said, I don't think I've seen you before. I'm Dale. What's your name? And they made their introduction. She said, it's actually my first week. And he said, okay, great. I'll be your tour guide today. And so he just brought her into the service. He showed her where everything was at. He brought her to the Welcome Center. She got signed up for the Women's Conference in a couple of weeks. He just gave her the full tour because, you know, he believed that God wanted to use his life in that way. And as she shared with me privately, the hilarious thing was, I, I gave an illustration this morning, if you weren't there this morning, about enjoying reading one-star reviews of places that are really popular. And she said, I couldn't believe you told that story because I was trying to figure out where I was gonna go to church today. And I looked up you guys, and the first thing I did was read the one-star reviews. <laughs> <laughs> so she already came with like suspicion, you know, like, well, I've read a couple of one stars about this guy. And for Dale to like just love on her and all of that, how beautiful is that? So to come with an expectancy that God wants to use you. Um, I shared about this next one this morning, but I believe that when it's time to worship God in singing, and I'm saying that intentionally because I believe that when we open up the word and the preaching is happening, that's a form of worship. I believe the way we fellowship on the patio before and after services can be a form of worship. When we serve each other, that's a form of worship. So when we're worshiping in singing, uh, as I shared this morning, let's do that with our whole heart. Let's be men who are exemplifying for the rest of the church what it looks like to go through the process of saying, this is a time for me to wholeheartedly worship my king, to pledge my allegiance to him afresh. So think about the words that you're singing. Don't wait for your emotions to well up inside of you. A lot of times the emotions will follow. Sometimes they won't, but that's not the point. It's about giving God who deserves it your adoration and your praise. And uh, so give it to him and push out the distractions of the day and sing to the Lord. This will have a great effect on preparing your heart for whatever sermon is preached that day. And then as far as the teaching goes, my, I think the way I want to say this is that, you know, at the end of the day, it's the Holy Spirit's job. He's the one who has to work to speak to us, to move us, to encourage us. But if you were to put it on the human side of things, I would say that half the work is the pastor's and half the work is, is yours as the listener. Um, in other words, you'll get out what you put in. Um, so my, my advice is when the word is being taught, I think you should have your Bible with you so that you can follow along. And my personal advice is to take notes. I know some people aren't big note takers and they don't feel that they get a lot out of it. Um, but I believe that what it can do at the very least is to help you track with the word, 
track with the thought process that is being delivered that day. So some people I know can't do that. They don't feel that they benefit. They're not able to process a teaching while taking notes. But my personal habit, whenever I hear a sermon, if I'm not driving and listening to it online or something, uh, is to take copious notes. My, my goal is to be able to re-say that sermon in my own words as a result of what I've written down um, from uh, the word. So that's my advice. Bring a Bible, take notes. Uh, I really don't like teaching when people don't have their Bibles with them. It always feels so awkward to me when I say things like, so look at verse 7 and someone is just looking right at me, just staring at me. I'm like, look, and I'll just look at him again. Look at verse seven. Look, look, look right now. <laughs> I want them to be able to have it in their Bibles. Or I know we'll put it on the screen uh, as well from time to time. But I think it's important to have the word and to uh, at least consider taking notes as you go through the word. Another thing I would say about being part of the church gathering is to all day thank people. Thank people who have served you and have served others that day. Thank them. You know, uh, I, I get a lot of people saying thank you, you know, at the door and all of that, and I, I appreciate that. It's always meaningful. But there are so many people that come together to make a public church gathering come together, right? I mean, the people that are parking you out in the parking lot, be thankful to them. Thank them specifically, you know, people that are at the door greeting us, you know, this isn't just something that they just like thought they felt like doing, you know, they signed up, they committed, they made sacrifices. Thank them for being there and helping direct traffic. If you have children every single week, thank the people that have taken care of your kids that week. It's a sacrifice. They're not getting any money from it. Uh, and I know that there are plenty of days where they're tired and probably would rather be, you know, sleeping in and eating an egg McMuffin or something on that Sunday morning. So thank them for what they've done. Uh, thank the worship team, you know, for the effort and the energy that they put into leading us in worship. People that you see around that are doing tech ministry and all of that say, hey, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for this cup of coffee. Just have a heart that says, I want to thank the people that are here serving me, the, the guys in the bridge that are making us meals in the grill, you know, thank them for what they are doing. A thankful heart, like I shared this morning, is a healthy heart. So cultivate that every time you come to a gathering of God's people. And eventually, you know, as you're kind of going through this, I think that a next step will be that a, a healthy believer will serve his local church family. I mean, that'll just come naturally at some point. You'll say, it's time for me to get involved. And for some of you, that might never touch the Sunday gathering. Uh, might happen, you know, in the middle of the week, in a smaller group, or hosting a life group, or something like that. But for a lot of us, uh, we might even do those things, but then also try to volunteer a little bit on Sunday mornings, because, you know, a lot is required to be able to put on a quality church service. I mean, for me as a leader here in this church, one of the things I'm always harping on is just, uh, you know, the, the modern church has become so complex in a lot of ways that we've just created so many things where one of the questions I'm always asking Pastor Manny is, how many people does it take for us to pull off a church service? Because I always want to get that number 
as low as I possibly can. I don't, I don't want us to have to have, you know, like, well, we have like, we have like a gauntlet of greeters, you know, like 17 of them. Like one does the high five and one does the low five. Like I just, it's like, it's just out of control. Like we need to come, we need to worship, we need to honor the Lord, but there are just some things that need to be done. And so we really try to focus on the, the musical expression of worship, what's happening up on the platform we try to focus on the kids, you know, ministering to our children. Those two components are really important in the southern, uh, in the, the large gathering. And then, of course, there's just the directing of traffic and welcoming people, answering questions, things like that. And so I'd encourage you to pray about ways that you could serve in uh, these gatherings. And a church like ours, to me, it's great. We have a couple of services. You can serve at a service and you can attend another service. So you can have one where you're just receiving and one where you are pouring out and giving, and it doesn't go beyond uh, the morning time, unless, of course, you went to that 12 o'clock service. So that's my recommendation. And uh, if I could just say it this way pastorally, I'd love to see more men helping out with the kids. Uh, I think sometimes that becomes like a gendered thing in our minds where we think that that's what the, that's what the ladies are for. But so many of these kids, you, you just think about it, they're being, they're being uh, saturated with female relationships, which is fine, but they need good men in their lives too. You know, they, they need to see godly guys that are just, you know, fun, that love them, that care for them, that are there to, you know, share the word with them. And uh, so my encouragement is to pray about that uh, as well. All right, after the service is over with, my encouragement to you is to stick around a little bit. I know sometimes we got to get going, but some of the most beautiful things happen as we're just lingering before and after services. My daughter uh, actually gave me a ride to church this morning. We've got a bunch of family car juggling at this stage, and uh, so she gave me a ride so that she could go home and then kind of get ready herself and come to a later service. And I just kind of was talking and it's kind of just thinking out loud on my drive-in. And I just said, I wonder what God's going to do today. And she was like, what would you say? I'm like, I just uh, I wonder what God's going to do today. And when I said that, what, what I meant was just like in all the little connections that we all have after and before services, what's God going to do? What cool thing is God going to weave together in all of our lives as we just stick around. But when we depart, we miss out on a lot of that. So I'd encourage you in that way. And uh, all this has to be done in prayer. So, you know, that's just a little bit of how to, you know, go to church. All right, let me, let me quickly move through some friendship-oriented stuff as well. Um, we're made in God's image, so we're made for friendship. Like I said earlier, God is triune. Um, he said at the very beginning, on the sixth day, it's, it's not good, or after the sixth day, it's not good for a man to be alone. Uh, that, uh, that was the sixth day. It's not good for a man to be alone. It has something to do with marriage, but it has um, everything to do also with friendship. We're not called to live solitary lives, uh, disconnected from other people. We're made for friendship. We need friendship. Now, I found that for men, this is something that's easier said than done. Um, in reality, good friends are hard to come by. You know, we can, you know, we've all heard the, the, uh, 
joking comparisons with, you know, what your social media feed says about how many friends you have or whatever. Like you probably don't have 700 friends in reality. Um, in reality, you might only need two or three solid friends. And my encouragement is that you select good and godly friends. And we're going to talk about that uh, tonight. But the Bible says in Proverbs 18, verse 1, that a man who isolates himself rages against all wise judgment. And I think that's a great description of a man who rejects Christian friendships. Uh, isolation is unhealthy. Uh, part of the reason that it's unhealthy is because if you don't have solid Christian friends, you become less capable to do great things for God. It's just the reality. If you don't have solid Christian relationships, then um, God can't put very much weight on the bar for you. You're just not going to be strong enough to handle very much. Your friends make you stronger. So part of the reason I'm saying have good and godly friendships is because it actually increases the possibility of fruitfulness in each one of our lives to have these relationships and these networks in our lives. I know for me, everything I've done ever in life, ministry, school, marriage, family, it's all been aided by good friendships. Now, the Proverbs speak a lot about friends, so I'm going to look at a few of them tonight. We'll put them on the screen uh, for you. But before I throw these verses up there, it'd probably be good for me to define what I mean when I say friendship. Um, when I talk about friendship, I'm not talking about mentors in your life, though you might think of them as a friend. Um, they're not primarily that. Um, so, for instance, I see Pastor Jeff out here, he's been a mentor to me for many years. I think we would describe each other as friends as well, uh, but we're in totally different stages and seasons of life. Uh, what, what I've mostly received is that mentoring kind of hand from him. Um, so to me, a true friend is someone that you choose who also chooses you. It's someone that you choose who also chooses you. Uh, this is important because, you know, especially in the church, we, we understand, like, we're, we're supposed to be there for everybody, right? We're supposed to be there for everybody. We shouldn't shun anybody. We should be available to people, love people. So we, could, we might get the sense, like, we're all supposed to be friends, right? But a friend is someone that you choose, but they also choose you. It's kind of this mutual thing, like, yeah, we're going to partner up together. There's that kind of connection to each other. And I think also on top of that, a true friend is normally a peer, someone who's in a similar life stage or season as you. So that's kind of the working definition that I'm using when I talk about friends. So what do friends do? Well, Proverbs 12, verse 26 says, one who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor but the way of the wicked leads them astray. One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. So the first thing I want to show you is that a friends will help motivate you in the right direction. Okay, wicked friends, according to the proverb, they lead a person where? They lead them astray. And so it stands to reason then that good friends will lead you in God's path. I don't know what it is, but for a lot of us, unhealthy and defiant behavior is attractive. 
There's just something that's like, wow, look at that person. They just like, they march to the beat of their own drum, you know, kind of thing. And we think that that edge is meaningful. We're drawn to it. And so sometimes we choose friends that are like that. But this proverb instructs us to choose our friends wisely. We have to be cautious in our selection. Don't just fall into a friendship, but think about that decision. Will they lead you wisely? You know, when the time comes for them to give you counsel or direction or input, will they give you God's wisdom or their own wisdom? Uh, the second proverb I'll show you is Proverbs 27, verse 17. This is a great one about friendship. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Okay, from this, I, I just want to point out that friends will shape you. Friends will shape you. Uh, when friends are together, they're shaping each other. Like iron sharpening iron through contact, friends shape one another. So what would that mean to us then? We would, that means that we want to have friends who make us sharper and better. Uh, good friends who provide a safe space for us to discuss life in a constructive way. Um, you know, I don't know if, if you've ever had the experience of somebody that you don't know at church giving you a corrective word or a challenge. Uh, that never goes down all that easy. It's not a pleasant experience. I'm a pastor's kid. I grew up in, a, in the church, and I've been a pastor for, you know, 23 years, so I've had my fair share of awkward church encounters uh, with confrontations that I didn't ask for. Uh, but uh, when a friend does that, it's a totally different ballgame. Like, wow, you, you know me. I realize this is probably painful for you to do. There's, this is costly for you. You don't enjoy this. But it's come to the point where you have an exhortation for me that you feel is important for me to hear. Iron sharpening iron, and one man sharpens another. So this is a beautiful description of friendships. Um, and part of that is just by watching each other's lives. You know, the challenge of just living life and, and seeing others and the way that they're doing things. You know, each summer when I take my family up to, to uh, Lake Tahoe to spend some time alone, eventually a couple of my friends come with their families. And, you know, it's not like we're there like judging each other or anything, but we can't help but notice the way that we're all treating each other's kids. You know, I'm, I'm watching how my friends are treating their children and the way they're leading them, and I'm learning things. I'm growing. I'm seeing, oh, man, I'm kind of deficient in that area. Look at how soft and sweet he was when his daughter was freaking out because she didn't like her bathing suit that day. You know, look at how he handled it and compare it to the way I handled it the day before or whatever it might be. You know, you kind of, you, you get challenged as you go through life together in that way. But another one I want to show you is Proverbs 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. So this speaks again of the idea of friends giving counsel. Uh, you should not be the only one speaking into your life. It shouldn't be about only your thoughts. If you are your only counselor, if we are our only counselor, we will go astray. So how can you receive good counselor? Well, a good counselor, they know you. They see your heart, but they watch your life. 
And a good friend will have that perspective and that counsel that you couldn't have all by yourself. So when you invite this into your life, great change and help occurs. Okay, and then Proverbs 16, verse 28. A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. And for this, I just wanted to say the kind of friends you're looking for are trustworthy men. Uh, Men who are not dishonest, who are sharing uh, the secrets of your life with other people, uh, but men of integrity who uh, you can build a relationship that is based on trust with. Uh, lies and slander or ridicule behind their back, that will kill a friendship. When, when trust is broken through things like that, uh, friendship usually just breaks down or, or at the very least just stalls. You just can't move forward without trust. And so here we learn that good friends are trustworthy. Okay, so how do you choose friends? Well, I think in part by what I've shared already from the Proverbs, but the Proverbs also show us the kinds of people that we should uh, watch out for. Uh, Proverbs 22 verse four says, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. So if you're, Thinking about being, a, being tight with a man who is easily offended or is bitter or is hot-tempered, uh, the Proverbs are giving you a warning about that. Watch out for that kind of friendship. They're just going to suck you in. Eventually, that anger is going to be aimed at you, I think, is part of the warning. Um, Proverbs 28, verse 7 says, The one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. I think what that means is that when we're looking for friends, we're looking for men who have some semblance of control of their bodily appetites, right? You, if you see a man who can't control his, his drink or his uh, eating habits or his spending habits, uh, that's the kind of person that you might not want to invest deeply in that friendship. Uh, they lack insight. Their God is their belly, Philippians 3.19. They can't see the long result of sin. So we're looking for self-controlled people. Again, not perfect people, but who have a pattern of self-control. I think also the Proverbs show us we should watch out for disrespectful people. Uh, It says in Proverbs 28, verse 24, whoever robs his father or his mother and says that is no transgression is a companion to a man who destroys all right, so there are disrespectful people out there who, uh, you know, they treat their parents terribly, the Proverbs is saying. They rob them, they're mooching off of them. These are not the kinds of people we want to be friends with. And then the last one from the Proverbs as a word of warning is we want to watch out from attaching ourselves as close friends to sexually loose or immoral people. It says in Proverbs 29, verse three, he who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. In other words, people who live a sexually loose lifestyle are not ideal for friendship because their life will eventually affect yours. They're only living for right now, their pleasures, their desires. So do the future you a favor and... Continue the conversation with them, but be cautious around friends who have rejected God's sexual ethic. All right, let me close by just saying, uh, talking about just four brief things that I think that good friends can do for you. I've always been fascinated by 
Uh, King David, I love him as a character. He's probably my favorite Old Testament character. Just so complex, obviously imperfect, uh, needed a lot of grace. But when David established his cabinet in Israel, you know, his leadership team, he had a lot of different people, counselors, advisors, uh, commanders. Um, but I've always been intrigued by a little statement in 1 Chronicles 27, 33 that says, and in that team, Hushai the Archite was the king's friend. That was like one of the guys on his cabinet was just his homie. <laughs> like I got all these people. I got, I got my guys that are going to war. I got my guys that are organizing, you know, in charge of the crops and all of that. I got, I got my people who are taking care of the treasury. I got my people who are doing all these different things. But um, I, I also have a friend who's here with me in the midst of all of this. And, and I believe that especially if you aspire to, to do something with your life, you really need friendships to help you because life is going to take its toll upon you. And I've discovered that friends, the kinds of friends I'm talking about tonight, godly men, they can do a lot for you. One thing they can do for you is they can give you uh, rest. They can give you rest. You know, not to press the war analogy too much, but, you know, to me, there's a lot about being obedient to the Lord, walking with him, uh, surrendering to him that is warlike in nature. You know, it's a, it's a battle. I mean, the, this is terminology that's even used in scripture. We're in a spiritual battlefield or spiritual warfare. And what friendships can do is they can give you a little bit of rest from the tireless nature of that. You know, our sanctification is never done, right? There's never, there's not going to come a Sunday morning where you hear a sermon and you're like, you know what? Wow, I made it. I'm all the way like Jesus now. Like there's always more work to do. It's a, it's a tiring thing. And we can become overwhelmed and your friends can provide rest for you uh, from that. Sometimes just in the form of a distraction from your work or your responsibilities. Um, sometimes they'll talk with you about those things, but the great thing about friends is that they care about those things to a degree, and then they don't care anymore. You know, it's kind of like, all right, man, you've shared enough about your job with me, and I'm kind of done hearing about your job at this point. And a friend will kind of let you know. They might say it directly. They might be one of those kind of friends, like, can we stop talking about your job? Or they might be the kind of person where you just kind of get it through their nonverbal signals. Like, oh, you're kind of, I'm boring you now, aren't I? Let's move on to talking about something else. And a friend will just do that. They'll kind of just help you uh, think about something else. They'll, they'll give you that rest. Uh, another thing is that friends will give you uh, gladness. Friends will give you gladness. Um, I think, I don't know about you, but as a, as a leader at least, uh, leadership is a sobering work. Um, and I think uh, it's a temptation for anyone who's a, in a leadership position to take themselves too seriously at times. It's a temptation. And to feel like the planet is going to fall apart if I don't do my job well. But uh, you know that's not true, but sometimes it kind of feels like it. And a good friend 
will just kind of help you turn all that off for a second and just laugh for a while. You know, they'll let you know that you're not all that big, that big of a deal. You know, they'll let you know that the planet's not going to fall apart without you. Work and leadership and life, they're very hard. So a good friend helps make the medicine go down. They're a good medicine and a, and a, a good friend will make you laugh. Uh, also, a good friend, I think, good friendships, will, they'll produce humility in your life. Um, you know, when you're walking with the Lord it, and being disciplined and allegiant to him, it's inevitable that there are going to be people that begin looking up to you. They begin to admire you. Um, Jesus is the greatest leader who ever walked the earth. He's been imitated by millions of people. But as you step out in imitating him, um, people will begin to notice that. And you might begin even believing some of the great things that people say about you. But a good friend will bring the requisite humility into your heart and life. They'll never be able to bring all the humility that you need, but a friend will never take you, as I've been saying, all that seriously. When a, when a friend laughs at you or rolls their eyes at you or jokingly mocks you, it can be a really good thing for your soul. It can be just what the doctor ordered. Help you get off your high horse to realize that you're not all that important and that you're just a child of God. And a friend helps remind you of that reality. And then lastly, I just want to say friends can give you, as I've been saying tonight, wisdom for the perplexing realities of life. They'll, they'll just give you so often a perspective about yourself that you never would have had uh, alone. I can't tell you how many times my friends have bolstered me in maybe even things that I knew I needed to do or I needed to say or I needed to be about but was struggling to find the conviction. Friends can give that to you. So let's cr close with one last Proverbs. Proverbs 17, verse 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. We need friends who at all times will stand with us and brothers who are there for us in moments of adversity. I remember hearing the story of a professional football player recently, about 10 years ago, who took his own life. And um, he was retired, uh, but just recently. And in interviewing some of his teammates about his death, what the author of the article found is that they really had no idea what had been happening with him for many years. They weren't aware of it at all. And they had talked a lot about going to war with each other, being in the trenches with each other, and you know, getting each other's backs and all that kind of stuff. But what the author began discovering is that they really didn't know anything about each other's lives. There was a real gap between what they professed, what they said they had happening, and what was actually happening. And my encouragement to you guys is that um, we... We have a decision to make when it comes to knowing and being known. Uh, we can be the kind of guys who say things like that. You know, we're going to war together, and we got each other's backs, and, you know, we're there for each other, ride or die. You know, we can say these kinds of things. But in order to really be a help to each other, we have to open up our hearts. We have to talk about what's happening within us. We have to confess sin to each other. These are the kind of things that you've got to be able to do with a good and godly friend 
in order to get the benefits of Christian friendship that I think God promises to all of us. So let me pray for you and ask that God would help us in this. Lord, we pray that you'd make us into great church men who are a blessing, not only to this church right now, but to whatever church we're part of in the years to come. And also, Lord, make us great friends who are encouraging our circle of friends and receiving their encouragement uh, right back. We thank you, Lord, for these great gifts of the gospel community you've invited us into. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary, please visit calvary.com. We hope to see you at our next growth night on the first Sunday of every month at 5.30 p.m. Thanks, church. God bless.